okay, Daniel 4. Open your script and your word of God with me to Daniel chapter 4. Now, by way of review and getting to Daniel 4, back in chapter 2, we learned of the progression of Gentile nations, right? Remember that? Remember this? The Gentile nations who would rule over Israel until Messiah, Jesus Christ, makes his second advent to this earth when he will establish his literal earthly kingdom. It was back in chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that looked similar to this image that's in front of us here today. Let me try to make that one more time. Boom, there we go. And in his dream, he recognized that there were Gentile world dominion over Israel until a rock that was cut without hands, as we discovered, was is the rock, Jesus Christ himself, when he comes at his second advent, the rock that's going to smash the feet of all human authority and power and completely, it says, like chaff, it will be completely gone and it will become a kingdom that will overtake the entire world. And it was a kingdom that says that will have no end. In chapter 2, 44, it said, in the days of those kings, which were the kings right here, the very bottom kings, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. We see this right here, right? Here comes the crushing power of Christ. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. I guess I could say Merry Christmas right about now, right? I mean, Merry Christmas, right here, Jesus Christ. He came in His first advent to save, and He's coming again to rule and reign with a rod of iron. Amen? Is this, is this not why we come each Lord's Day in recognition that King, the King is Jesus Himself, the only King of kings and Lord of lords? And then in chapter 3, we have a significant lesson of faith. And God provided us with a portrait of three faithful men in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing in the plain of Dura, unwilling to bow down to the golden statue. And thus we have an enduring story of how God still provides for His faithful children who, irrespective of cultural conditions and the threat of personal bodily harm and or death, remain faithful to Him. Because, as we saw, their faith in Yahweh landed them in the midst of a furnace filled with a raging fire. And by their example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego leave for us a very simple plan of action to remain faithful to our God as well that can help us when we are faced with our fiery trials in lives, which it's not a matter of if but when, the first thing they produce for us by way of example is that we can simply acknowledge our needs to God without stipulating to Him how He should or must respond. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did that for us faithfully. They did not stipulate to God how He must or should respond to their time of need. Secondly, we can humbly acknowledge the ability of God either to meet our needs in the way we desire or in a way He knows is better. And I think we sometimes need to let that one sink in. Because oftentimes He doesn't meet our needs in the way that we perceive is the better. And so we need to know that His ways are always best. Thirdly, we can commit ourselves to uncompromising obedience, whatever comes in those circumstances. And lastly, we should never second-guess His ways or question His goodness and love for His elect, come what may. Amen? These are four time-tested truths that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego put on display we can learn from these and make application for these in our lives as well. Now, look at what Nebuchadnezzar says of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, 
verse 28, as a result of their faithfulness and doctrinal convictions. And this is where we left off last week. Chapter 3, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. One simple observation here is that Nebuchadnezzar, from this pagan Babylonian king, we see here that he does not respond by praising Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It says instead that he blessed the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. In other words, the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego caused Nebuchadnezzar to take note of God and his faithfulness to his elect, which is exactly what we are hoping and praying to do in our lives as well. Jesus teaches this in the Gospels in Matthew 4, 5, 14 through 16. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. And then verse 16, notice. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are to live our lives in such a way that causes others to take note of God. The reason they will take note of God is due to the fact that they know that you are one of God's kids. And the reason they know that you are one of God's kids is because you have lived before them in such a way that they may see your good deeds. You have not hidden under a bushel the reality that God through His gospel radically changed your life for time and eternity. No. Hide it under a bushel? <laughs> no. We're going to let it shine. Nebuchadnezzar knew this about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, he says of this idea, he says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is how you let your light shine before men. Well, I don't want to live in a way that's kind of showing, that, yeah, I don't want to be like hypocritical and like try to put it. No, let your light shine before men in such a way that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ look good, that causes people to, make, to take note of God because they're not going to give you praise. They're going to give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Why? Because He's the one that did what? Changed you. He changed you with His glorious gospel. Amen? And so everything you do, do for the glory of God. And you do this by doing what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did here in chapter 3, verse 28, who put their trust in Him. Who put their trust in Him. Are we living in our lives today in such a way that we could be accused of actually trusting in Him. You say, well, pastor, how does that look? Well, it looks very simple. It looks like a life that is being made in conformity into the image of His likeness. It's a life that's being made into the conformity of His Word. So as God's children, as those of us who call ourselves Christian, we look into the Scriptures for our marching orders. And so the, the reason why we let our light shine before men in such a way, and the reason why it glows brightly the way it glows is because we are walking in indifference to the ways and the manners and the customs of the world and the culture in which we live. We live by very peculiar standards, as did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who refused to eat the choice food and drink the wine from the king's table because of a very arbitrary dietary code from the worldly perspective, but from their perspective, it had everything to do with their relationship with God. And it mattered down to the detail. So when God said to them, these are the things you eat and these are the things you don't eat, they just said, yes, sir, marching orders. It's what we do. Is there any other question? Is there any other way? When the Scripture says things like, you don't have sex outside of marriage and you keep your marriage bed pure, you just say, yes, sir, that's what we do. Why? Because that's what it says. It doesn't matter what the world says, that's what we do. When it says that believers take believing spouses and believing husbands and wives, we just say, yes, sir, that's what we do. Why? Because that's what the Scripture says. This is, this is the God from whom we get our marching orders. And we could, just mark, we could just go line upon line, statute upon statute. But this is how we demonstrate, as did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we trust in Him. Who put their trust in Him? Are you trusting in your God today? As evidence, not by your, the theory of your mind, but as evidence by your actual living. Could you be rightly accused of being one of His special kids? Could it be said of you that you let your light shine before men in such a way that they saw how you lived your life and it caused them to say, man, there has to be a God in heaven to change you because I would never live that way. There, there has to be a God that changed you to make you want to, th to think that way and thus live that way because you're out of your mind. Man, you only got one time around on planet earth. You've got to gobble it all up while you can. You're missing out. Come on, man, lighten up and loosen up. Way too tight, man. That's not my brand of Christianity. Who put their trust in Him, violating the King's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any God except their own God. Think they say actions speak louder than words? You ever heard that one? They were willing to yield up their own bodies. Death before dishonor when it came to their relationship with God. How are we doing in trusting in Him to where we will not serve or worship any God or idol or idol of our heart, but only Yahweh our God and Him alone? And I think we need to answer this question in advance. We need to be thinking about these kinds of thoughts in advance so that when the day comes for us to stand, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to stand alone in the plain of Dura, their minds were already made up. Have you made up your mind, firmly made up your mind, have doctrinal convictions on how you live and why you live the way you live, squarely founded and rooted in God's Word? Not, not somehow formed or shaped by the culture with an appreciation towards God's Word, a tipping of our, of our hat to God's Word. Well, I recognize it, not, you know, I, but no, a recognition that herein is the way to life. Lamp to our feet, light to our path. Amen? Let's make up our mind. Let's be ready. And perhaps your time is now. Perhaps there's some here this morning who need to go out and make some things right. You might need to go out and amend some of your ways because your ways have not been in alignment with the authority of Scripture that you're claiming that it has over your lives. Let's make certain that we do that even today. Well, notice what else good came from the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at verse 29 and 30. It says, therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. We've seen this before. In chapter 2, if you can't give me the dream and its interpretation, limb from limb, houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in 
the province of Babylon. I mean, right here, God, through Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, just officially made his name, an acceptable household name in all the households of every people group and language in the entire known world. That's a pretty effective evangelism. So much so that if any people, nation, or tongue is to speak anything offensive, anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, torn limb from limb, and their houses utterly destroyed, a rubbish heap. Because Nebuchadnezzar now knows that the God of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego isn't just a God who's good at dreams. He's also the most powerful being that Nebuchadnezzar has ever encountered. There is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. This is what Nebuchadnezzar has said. There is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Nebuchadnezzar now has a big view of God, doesn't he? God has a way of changing our understanding of who he is and how we view him, and that's exactly what we see him doing here in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a big view of God, and so must we. And I've demonstrated for you before how such lofty theology has oftentimes been captured and written into our children's songs, right? I've kind of demonstrated that on more than one occasion. And here it is again. This truth is something you've known from your childhood, perhaps. You ready for the song? Our God is so big. So strong and so mighty, there's what? I can't. I can't hear you. What? Are you sure? Are you come? Are you certain about that? Nothing. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. I mean, a simple question. Do you believe that this morning? As you're sitting here this morning, do you believe there's nothing your God, our God, the God of the Scriptures cannot do? I mean, the song says the mountains are His, the rivers are His, the stars are His handiwork too. Daniel 2 says that all the nations, kingdoms rising and falling are His. Daniel 2 also says that the rock that was cut without hands is going to smash, that that's His too. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gets this now. And it's my prayer that we as God's children, those of us who call ourselves Christians, living after the fact of all these wonderful and magnificent prophecies have come to pass, that when we are faced with any and every hardship of life, that we too will remember such profound truth. There's nothing our God cannot do even if he chooses not to do the thing we want him to do. It's not from a lack of ability. We must remember what we just talked about, number two. Remember number two? Can we humbly acknowledge that God has the ability to do whatsoever he wants to meet our needs in the way that we desire or in a way he knows is better. And then number four, to never second guess his ways or question his goodness and love for his elect. Remember, if you remember last week, I purposefully went back and looked at Stephen. You know, we said, oh yeah, it's great. God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. He hasn't rescued me. Look at my life. Well, number one, let's get a few things straightened out here, all right, like this. Number one, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace because they took a stand for God on the plain of Dura and they would not worship a false idol or king. They weren't thrown in the fire because they had been out living in a squanderous life and selfish pleasures, sinning against God. God didn't have them picked up and thrown into the fire because of their sin. God had them picked up and thrown into the fire because of their testimony for the goodness of God over their lives. There's a big difference. 
If you're suffering this morning because you've been living in squander and sin, don't say, well, where's God? He saved them. Why didn't he save me? This is, this is gospel ramifications. These guys weren't living in sin. It doesn't say that. They were standing for Christ. Stephen, same thing. He was making a stand and a proclamation for the goodness of Jesus Christ and his gospel, and they stoned him to death, and that's why I showed you him last week and made the juxtacomparisons. Sometimes he does what? He's able to meet the, the, our desire the way we would like, rescued from the fiery furnace. But other times in Stephen's life, he knows what's better. And if you go to Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, it says of some of those faithful who made the Hall of Faith, these are God's faithful children, it says some of them were even sawn in two and perhaps torn limb from limb. God doesn't always choose to step in and rescue His special children. And we need to know that. So if you, as you go out and you give a gospel proclamation for the goodness and solidarity of Jesus Christ, it may cause you to suffer greatly, and then you may be saying, well, God, when are you going to show up and rescue me the way you did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? This is why we must remember, as they said, even if our God doesn't, it's not a question of His ability. It has everything to do with, is this His will and His desire in this instance? And we must remember that. Because as I peep around and as I peer around in the culture in which we live, God doesn't seem to be behaving now the way a lot of people would like for him to behave. And they tend to, where is it? They tend to start stipulating to him on how he should or must respond in certain circumstances. And when he doesn't, therein lies the reason for their anger and or depression against God. And it's a misplaced anger and a misplaced depression against God. Are you following me? This is a significant theology that we need to get squarely under, uh, right in our understanding. We must. That God, our God is not limited by anything. There's nothing our God cannot do if he so chooses to do it. Amen? Well, this morning as we continue in chapter 4, it continues a very fascinating record of King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 4 gives the record of God's very painful and personal humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. The message of chapter 4 seems to be very clear. God is preeminent and he will not give his glory to another. Remember from Isaiah 48, 11, he said, My glory I will not give to another. God is jealous for his own glory, and he will share his glory with none other. Nebuchadnezzar is found giving himself a lot of glory, and God is going to straighten him out severely. Let's look at chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 3. Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation, his praise of God is seen in verses 1 through 3, which proceeds, or, or not proceeds, but actually follows uh, the reality of the, of the deeds, the actions of God in his life in chapter 4. So this is, a, this is a, a response of Nebuchadnezzar as a result of what God has done in his life already. He says, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done, past tense, for me. Nebuchadnezzar here, in essence, is giving, again, his testimony of what God has done in his life with regard to him being king, needing to be humbled, and God stating that. Chapter 4 is kind of, it seems like, an equivalency of what we sometimes refer to as our President's State of the Union Address where once a year an American president gets up and he gives a state of the union of how things in the country are going. Dearly beloved, we are in more debt today than we've ever been before. You know, we've heard that speech over and over, year after year after year. And it's a speech that's intended for everybody in the land to listen to. And as a matter of fact, other nations are going to be listening in to it as well. And seeing that Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful 
king over the most powerful country in the known world at that time, his speech in chapter 4, the things that he says of God in chapter 4, I believe would have that same kind of resounding impact, not only within the Babylonian kingdom, but as it would crescendo from there outwards. Which, in, in some ways, if you think about it, is a way that, that the testimony of God is to crescendo from the lives of people who's had their lives impacted by God. Amen? I mean, that's what we are here to do. We're here to give testimony as he does. And in verse 3, he says, How great are his signs. These are coming from the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Listen, listen to the affirmation now from King Nebuchadnezzar. Originally when he heard that there was going to be a kingdom that was, he was just the head of gold and there were other kingdoms in the rock, smash, takes over the world. He says, no, I think I would like for the entire statue to be me, made of gold. I want my kingdom to endure forever. Now he's saying that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. And it seems to me that Nebuchadnezzar would have gleaned this knowledge, gleaned such wonderful truth, Oh, from, uh, from his friend Daniel, who gave him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And as a result of what happens in chapter 4, he has his heart humbled to such a place where he is now recognizing that God will have a, a, a kingdom, a dominion that will last forever and ever and ever. As we saw in chapter 2, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will itself endure forever. Ever, and it seems that Nebuchadnezzar finally is believing this. Now, chapter 4, verses 4 down through verse 27, give an account of King Nebuchadnezzar's great humiliation. From verse 4 to 18, we're told of the, the dream, that the second dream, the second fearful dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And then from verses 19 down through verse 27, we see the interpretations and the implications of the dream and how it meads itself out in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Notice verse 4 with me. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Well, one of the things that we see right off the bat is that Nebuchadnezzar, before his great undoing and humbling, the recognition that God has a kingdom that's going to be everlasting, that will... His dominion is from generation to generation. Before God does what he does to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, we see here, is a very prideful person. It says that he was at ease, flourishing in his palace. Psalm 30, verses 6 and 7, we see this same reality, this reality that how the pride of man and how prosperity causes the pride of man to tend to put self in a place of, of a position of authority over God in our lives, as is evidenced here in Nebuchadnezzar's life. David seems to reflect a very similar reality in Psalm 36 and 7. Listen to what David said. So I'm pointing this out just to show that this isn't something that just happens in the life of an unbeliever like Nebuchadnezzar. This can happen in the life of the child of God if we're not careful as well. So remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, I was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. David said, now as for me, I say, I said in my prosperity, I said in my prosperity, I'll never be moved. I, I'm doing really well. I'm at ease in my house. I'm flourishing in my palace. Things are looking well. David said in his prosperity, I will never be moved. Such is the deceitfulness of prosperity. Wrongly thinking we don't need the Lord. Wrongly thinking that prosperity can be our strong tower. Wrongly thinking that God can't change our position and our stay in life at just a moment's notice. God can't do that. I've got, I've got bank accounts loaded with money. Have you ever seen what happened when one of the great wars hit and everybody's bank account went from something to nothing overnight? Listen, things can change on a dime. And so it's great to store up and have barns and be prepared, but it's never great to be at ease and feel like we're flourishing and we've arrived and we have no need for God because such is the deceitfulness of prosperity. It makes us think we don't have a need for God. And then in verse 7, David says, O Lord, 
By your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. And notice right here, he says, you hid your face. You hid your face. In other words, God, you hid your face from me. And when God, when you hid your face from me, notice what he says. He says, I was dismayed. There was a recognition shortly after David's recognition of, oh, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm never going to be moved. God hid his face from David, and David is in dismay, which causes David to recognize that the only way to stand strong is to have a solid foundation in the Lord. Lord, O oh Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You see the shift is subtle, but do you see the shift in emphasis in David from verse 6 to verse 7? And I say that and I point that out simply to note that when we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar this morning of this sinful pride and being at ease and flourishing in his palace, this isn't something that just unconverted hearts can fall prey to. Converted hearts can fall prey to this as well. And I want us to be aware of that this morning to make certain that Though the Lord may be prospering you and things may be going well and you may, to a certain degree, be living in ease. Maybe you're not, but maybe you are. To never forget that that favor comes by way of your Lord. Oh Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. Because when God chooses to hide his face from you, you will be in dismay and that happens oftentimes when he has to discipline those whom he loves because we think we can live life without him. I'll never be moved. <laughs> I'm good to go. How about you? Well, I'm only good to go in so much that I'm staying in stride with the living God, walking according to his spirit, not getting over ahead of my skis, thinking that I can somehow now figure life out on my own. No, I don't start trying to figure life out on my own. I continue to trim my sails back to the Scriptures and say, what do the Scriptures say? Therein is life. Therein is the path that leads to life. The path to my feet, the light to my path. I don't care what my bank account ever says or does say. This is the way to life. Amen? He will make you to stand. Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn this. David learned this as well. Now notice, how he goes from flourishing, Nebuchadnezzar, flourishing at ease. Now, notice how he goes from flourishing and at ease to being frightened once again by simple dreams. Verse 5, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. Well, I thought you were flourishing and at ease. God can change things quickly. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the vision in my mind kept alarming me. Verse 6, So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. And we see here that Nebuchadnezzar isn't fearful of them telling him lies at this time, as he was back in chapter 2, demanding the dream up front so that then I would know the interpretation is squared away. And it seems perhaps, this is a bit of speculation, but it seems perhaps he's not worried anymore about this because he's got Daniel. So verse 8. Here's verse 8. Got it right there. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him, saying. So, at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar depicted himself as being a worshiper, or a worshiper of his God, Bel Mordok. Daniel's name, he was named, he says right here, according to the name, Daniel, who came before me, Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. He, Daniel was given this Babylonian name, may Bel protect his life. But interesting enough from verse 8 and the recognition of this to the recognition of his praise in verses 1 through 3 to the very end, we see a complete shift in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. To where he's now going to be giving praise to the only true God of heaven and earth. Keep note of that. And one of the things I'm going to make mention when we get to the very end of this, and I don't know definitively, but chapter 4 sure seems to lay out a case 
for perhaps the conversion of a heart of a pagan king to the following of the only true God of heaven and earth. I don't know. We'll see if we can't make a decision when we get there here in just a little bit. Look at verse 9. Nebuchadnezzar tells his dream to Daniel in verses 9 through 12. Old Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. Verse 10. <coughs> now these... <coughs> Here we go. <clears throat> and now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. We see here that this tree is a significant blessing from the perspective of all the beasts and the birds that took food and shade and shelter within and from this tree. It was the best thing going in their lives was the greatness of this tree. But from heaven's perspective, there's something horribly wrong with this tree. Notice verse 13 and 14. It says, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Here we see what we would obviously call divine judgment coming from heaven. A holy one descended from heaven. Judgment coming against this tree that was a blessing to all the creatures on the earth. This holy one, this angelic watcher is descending from heaven now and directly targeting that which once was a blessing. Verse 15 and 16. He continues, Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So here we see that this tree that was a blessing has now been described as a man, and we see the severity of this divine judgment that's coming from heaven against the, this tree that's now being described as a man. He is to be restrained, it says, with a band of iron and bronze. After being cut down, there's a preservation of the life of this tree, of this man. He, it seems, will be living outside and thus drenched with the dew of heaven, and he is to eat the grass of the field together with the wild animals. And his mind will be changed from that of a man to the mind of an animal. And all of this is to last for a very specific duration of time. It says uh, specifically of seven periods of time will pass over him. And then verse 17 plainly tells us the reason for this dream that has greatly troubled and brought fear to the heart of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 14. It says this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. There, there, we have our purpose statement right there, that all the living of all time will know that the Most High, is ruler over the realm of mankind. And the ruler who reigns over the realm of mankind is the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God that rescued them from the king's first death edict, that rescued the three men from the fire, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Jews, in other words, the God of our Bible. His name is Yahweh. 
He alone is completely sovereign. This is the obvious reason so that the living may know. And who are the living today? Well, the living today, it looks like, looks like most of you are still with me here so far this morning. A few of you have fallen asleep, that's okay. But the rest of you are still among the land of living with us, right? So that the living may know. God has left a witness for himself in Daniel chapter 4 through King Nebuchadnezzar that is a testimony for all people and for all times that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this, but imagine the most powerful ruler of our day today. If he, was, if he were to get on the airwaves and the streaming channels and everything, and he got up and he was the all most powerful ruler in the world, and he were to say something like this, this kind of a statement has a significant impact. The kind of statement that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be making towards the end of the recognition of this dream. But the purpose for this is so that all people everywhere will know that there's only one God of heaven and earth. Do you remember the purpose statement for the plagues of Egypt? It was something about so that all the world would know that there's no God like our God. That's paraphrasing it just a little bit, right? God seems to have an interest in making his name great amongst the nations of the world. Have you noticed that in the scriptures? Because he's also in the business of saving from every tongue, tribe, and nation a people for himself who will be inhabiting that kingdom that has no end and will endure forever and ever and ever. And he's currently populating that kingdom now through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see here at the end of verse 17, God bestowed on Nebuchadnezzar, he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. The most powerful of men on the world from heaven's perspective are the lowliest of men. They're just servants of God doing God's bidding according to God's will, according to God's time, and he will raise them up, rise them up when he needs, and he'll bring them down when he's done with them. Sometimes it's hard for us to get our mind wrapped around such sovereign truth. But that's the kind of truth that will set us free when things get dark around us. Is it Jesus himself who said, some authority has been given me on heaven and on earth. Not some. All. Our God has all authority. All authority. In heaven and on earth. You can trust in him. Amen? Man, I'm at verse 18 here, but I'm out of time. Y'all got another 35, 40 minutes? All right, we're going to divide the church right here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Let me see if I can get to a good break here real quick. Let me do a, let me do a quick preview over the next three or four pages. Yes, let's give me five more minutes. You got five more minutes? Okay, that's a little better than 45, right? How about five more? Verse 18. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a, holy, for, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. So Nebuchadnezzar clearly knows that Daniel's God is able. We see here, but you are able... He recognizes that that's already happened before to both give a dream and interpret the dream. But did you also notice Nebuchadnezzar, now after giving this dream to Daniel, now refers to Daniel's God as being holy. For a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Nebuchadnezzar now has set apart the God of Daniel and Shadrach and Abednego. He has referred to this God as being a holy God, a God who is set apart from all the other gods. So he still has some learning 
to do. There's no question about that. There's still a need for his eyes to be opened up completely. There's no question about that. But he's starting to make recognition that there's no other God like Yahweh. He is holy. A spirit of the holy gods is in you. A God that's set apart from all other gods. A God who can do things that no other gods could do or have never done before. There's something unique about your God, Daniel. He's set apart. He's holy. So we're seeing... It seems to me the good work, the good evangelistic work that God has a way of doing in the hearts of people according to his program and his timing. Now notice Daniel's response to the dream. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. It says that Daniel was appalled at the thought of God's judgment coming against Nebuchadnezzar. This is how, I really believe, this is how we as believers should be as a result of knowing that God's judgment will be falling a world of non-believers. Far too often believers fail to comprehend the plight and the great humiliation of the non-believers of this world and are thus not compassionate for the souls of lost people, lost men and women. And I'm not just talking about lost men and women who are like way out there. I'm talking about lost men and women who are just living right next to you. When we talk about missions, I've told you this before, you can go through the entirety of the scriptures, you never see the word missionary, not once. Do we have missionaries? Yes. But what we see in the scriptures, we see Christians with Bibles. And Christians with Bibles under their arm who go to the uttermost parts of the world, we refer to them as missionaries. They're on a mission for Jesus. A great commission mission. But they're Christians with Bibles. And I'm here to tell you, if God calls you to do that, do that. Wholeheartedly. But remember, you can't export what you haven't first imported at home. If you're not doing it at home, there's no need to try to go export it somewhere else. Let's, let's be faithful right here. We need to be appalled at the, at the thought that we may be living with friends or neighbors or even relatives or perhaps really good people that we know who perhaps do not truly know the only true God of heaven and earth and we ought to be appalled at the thought of the judgment of God that will come against them. The wrath of God will be meted out on them one day. Daniel recognizes this. Daniel has compassion for the plight of Nebuchadnezzar which ought to strike us a little bit odd. Nebuchadnezzar, in the words of a former president, was a bad hombre. He wasn't a good guy. He did a lot of evil things. And sometimes we in our hearts kind of wish that such evil people would get executed and rightly, because they rightly deserve the justice of God, which means we have completely forgotten the depths from which we were saved from ourselves. We've completely become detached from the reality that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and had it not been for God's mercy and grace alone, not because we were better than anybody else, or you know we're just better people. No, God's mercy and grace alone, we were deserving of the same wrath of God as the most evil hombres out there. We forget that truth. Daniel doesn't seem to forget this, and he has compassion for the plight of Nebuchadnezzar. Keep looking at verse 19. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. This is where we can see that Daniel's wearing his emotions on his sleeves. It was said of D.L. Moody that he could not preach a sermon on hell without tears filling his eyes and streaming down his face. Lord, might that be true of all of us? To connect with the plight of lost people who, when they die on earth, it's given among men to die once and then comes judgment. Might we have a compassion for people that would lead us in the same way. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that something has drastically changed in Daniel's face, and he says, let not this dream or its interpretation alarm you. Keep looking. Belshazzar replied, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Through Daniel, we learn the very valuable lesson that we see in the New Testament, in the book of James, mercy triumphs over judgment. Was Nebuchadnezzar worthy of mercy? Clearly not. He's done all sorts of bad stuff to any number of people. 
Here is Daniel feeling compassion for a lost sinner in the hands of an angry God who is to bring judgment against him. Might we learn this lesson from Daniel. Might we be people of mercy and grace, freely giving out the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people, just like he did to you and me. Amen? Now from verse 20 to 26, Daniel gives the meaning of the dream. And what I'm going to do right here, I'm going to put a little, I'm going to put a little star right here, and I'm going to put a little note right here. Start here next week because I've already gone 7 minutes and 35 seconds and I told you 5. Next week we're going to pick up where Daniel starts giving the meaning of the dream to the king and explaining the severity of the judgment that will befall him. And then we're going to see the outcome of the reality of this hitting Nebuchadnezzar's life matter of fact, in verse 28, it says, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Verse 28. It's coming. Twelve months later, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. It came. There was another reprieve for twelve months. Another reprieve of a year in his life. Daniel beckoned him to repent. That maybe God would relent and show mercy. And it seems that he maybe did. And that God showed him mercy for upwards of twelve months. But God's judgment came and it fell, just like he said it would. Now, we're not going to pick up here next week because next week we're going to pick up with the advent of Jesus Christ. Next week we're going to pick up with the rock that smashed the feet. Now, that's the second advent. We're going to be talking about the first advent. So the week after that, we'll be picking back up right here where Daniel starts giving the meaning of the dream to the king. There are some life lessons that I hope that you are learning as we are walking our way through this text on how we as God's children can live like and unto a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and or a Daniel. They were just men like we are. They were flesh just like we are. They had their Bible just like we do. There was nothing ultra special about them. There's nothing ultra special about any of us. We're all saved by grace through faith alone, not as a result of works. And we all have one chance to live for God under, this, under the sun. Our one, our one existence on this planet, right? Let's make it count. Listen, if you're here this morning, perhaps you don't know the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with the God of Daniel. Perhaps you're looking at this book and you're saying, man, this, is, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, you jumped in in chapter 4 with us, if perhaps you're here for the first time. I'd love to sit down with you and walk you from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4 and show you a little bit more about this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because the rock that smashes the statue without feet is the very Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself. And He is coming again a second time. And He will establish a literal earthly kingdom. And it will reign for a thousand years. Forever and ever and ever into the eternal state. It will happen and I'd love to share that with you. And if God's drawing your heart, please come and talk with me. Let's pray.